Well, good morning. Can I add my welcome to you this morning? My name's Lindsay. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, <clears throat> I'm going to be taking us through that passage that we've just heard read. Do grab a Bible from the back if you would like to. If you haven't got one with you, it can be really helpful to have it in front of you. That's my right, your left, just at the back by the sofas. As you've heard, we are in 1 Peter at the moment in our sermon series. And um, this is a letter written by Peter, we're told, to God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, places in northern Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And this is a letter of encouragement. Many years ago, I had to spend a year in France. It was compulsory for uh, language students, I think it still is, Um, and I was sent off to the south of France to study at the University of Nice. Gosh, poor you, I can hear you saying. I can can see you're just full of sympathy, aren't you, already? And, And I have to say, of course there were pluses. There were real pluses. I learned to speak French. I got a nice suntan. I enjoyed the culture, I learned to ski. Yes, there were, there were lots of advantages of living in that part of the Mediterranean. But I have to say too, that there were times when I felt really cut off from friends and family. You know, in those days, of course, there was no email, there was no Skype, there was no texting, and phoning was really, really expensive. So I had to kind of, you know, kind of save up and think, okay, you know, have I got enough now? I'm going to go and make this phone call. And then I had to really keep an eye on the time, what I wanted to say. It was, you know, it wasn't easy. And um, I remember, especially at the start, that I literally would watch the clock each morning and I would wait for the post. And then I would go down the five floors, I think it was, to my little kind of box with my key and open it up. And I was just waiting to see if there was a letter there because I was so desperate to hear from my friends and family back here in the UK. This letter from Peter is written to people who would have been really glad to receive it. It's a letter of encouragement. It's written to Christians who are scattered over a wide area and who share a similar problem to each other. And that problem is how to live for God in the midst of a society that's ignorant of the true God. That's what they're facing. And I guess it's a problem that we face here, don't we, in the 21st century. How do we live a life, a godly life as Christians? when it's such a pagan society. And those Christians then, they were being persecuted because of their Christian faith. And so they were facing constant discouragement. Their faith was in conflict with the society that they lived in. And so they were misunderstood. They were disrespected. Life was difficult for them. And I I imagine that probably the same is true for some of us. But maybe at work or perhaps socially, People, we find that they don't always admire us and respect us for our Christian faith. Maybe some of you find that people are a bit disparaging, a bit kind of mocking when they hear that you're a Christian and they they watch the lifestyle that you seek to live. And Peter's desire through this letter is to help these early believers see their sufferings in the light, not of the here and now, but of eternity. And he's encouraging them to allow God's grace and the mutual support of one another 
to bring them to maturity in Christ. Don't give up, he's saying. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep persevering. So it's into this context that Peter urges his readers, in spite of their difficulties, to adopt a kind of lifestyle of salvation, if you like, a lifestyle that's suitable for those who have been saved by Jesus. And he makes three little recommendations in this passage that I'm going to, and I'm just going to highlight them quite briefly. And the first thing that he says is live a life of hope and holiness. And if you're following, you can um, just see where we are in verse 13. He he begins by telling them, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. In other words, he's saying, come on, guys. Pull yourself together. Get a grip. And find your hope in the incredible grace that will be yours when Jesus comes again. Don't give in to those things that pull you in the wrong direction, that pull you away from the faith. Those were things that you did before you knew God, before you knew that God had a plan for your life. Don't do that. But rather live now as God would have you live, choosing to be holy just like he is. He doesn't beat about the bush, does he? These are kind of vulnerable people. They're discouraged. They're being persecuted for their faith. But he doesn't tone it down. I wonder why that is. I think it's because he knows that the need is urgent. Their souls are at stake. He knows what's good for them. He knows that holiness is the best thing for them and that the only way to live a holy life is to turn away from the other things that pull them away from God, to choose purity and to dedicate themselves to God's commands and to his son, Jesus. What about us, I wonder? How convinced are we of the urgency to live holy lives as we wait expectantly for Jesus' return? Is that our main priority? Or do we sometimes, just sometimes, find ourselves a bit distracted, maybe a bit apathetic when it comes to a call on our lives to be holy? I wonder if we sometimes get into a a a bit of a sort of comfortable way of life that's kind of respectable. It's moral, so it seems quite godly. But maybe it doesn't require too much of us in the form of kind of cost and sacrifice. And do you know, I say this as much to myself as I say it to any of you, because it's something that I felt really challenged about recently. When we were on holiday this year, my husband Mark, and I'm married to Mark, who's a senior pastor, um, and um, we were reading a book that absolutely challenged the socks off us. It's a, a book called Crazy Love by a guy called Francis Chan, and he is coming actually next year to do the Bible readings at uh, New Wine LSE. So do book up. It's going to be fantastic. I expect that you will hear lots about this book in the coming weeks because we have both been really impacted by it. Um, and it wasn't a comfortable read, I have to say. 
So in it, he asks some really uncomfortable questions. And one which relates to what we're thinking about right now was this. How might you describe yourself as a Christian? So are you passionate about your faith, he asks, or do the words half-hearted, lukewarm, and partially committed fit better? And then he goes on to offer a description of lukewarm people. And I can tell you that is not an easy read. Those of you who have read it, I know that you'll know what I'm talking about. Or at least it wasn't easy for me anyway. I, was really, I had to keep putting it down. I just couldn't bear to read it, actually. And I can't even bring myself to tell you his list of attributes of lukewarm people because it would be too uncomfortable for me to stand here and tell you that list. And I would feel way too unpopular, which, by the way, is one of the attributes of lukewarm people. Lukewarm people care more about what other people think about them than God who sees their heart. Please, God, may that not be true of me. But that's how it is. I can't tell you the list. I think Peter is warning his readers against lukewarmness, and he's calling them to the opposite, to holy living, to steadfastness, to purity. And I want to ask you a question, and it actually involves you coming up with your own definition of lukewarm, which is much safer, until you read the book, that is. I think there are some on the bookstall, so you might want to rush and buy your copy. But think of maybe lukewarm, your own definition. And then ask yourself if you're at risk of being lukewarm. If so, if you think you might be, then just remember the words of 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, which says this. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Might be worth a thought. Jesus wants everything from us. He doesn't want us to lose our focus on him and look somewhere else. He wants our total commitment and passion. Are we giving it to him? I'm just going to get a drink. Are we giving it to him? The second thing that Peter encourages his reader to is a life of reverence before God. If you're following, I'm in verse 17 now. Peter goes on to urge his readers to live a life of awe, in awe of God. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. So he's saying, live in fear of God. Live in fear. And that doesn't mean be frightened of God. It means respect him. Live in awe of him. Because he's the one who will judge our hearts one day. He's the one who cared so much that we might be justified and one day in glory with him that he offered us redemption by sending his son, Jesus. Not redemption through some kind of financial ransom, but redemption through his son, 
through flesh and blood because he cared so much about us that he wanted us to be with him in glory. It really mattered to him. And so it needs to matter to us too. And we must live in awe of him who's provided that redemption for us. I wonder if you live like that. I wonder if you live thinking about eternity, thinking about where you're going to be heading once all this is over. That hope of a wonderful future. I wonder if you live with that long-term perspective. Or is the here and now sometimes just so overwhelming that it's quite difficult to think past next Tuesday? Because I don't know about you, but I think life can be pretty full at times, so much so that we can lose our sense of perspective, can't we? Sometimes I wake early in the morning or in the middle of the night, and um, I find that all kinds of worries start flooding into my head. Do any of you have that? And it's funny how those worries seem to be so much worse in the night than they are when you wake up the following morning. In fact, sometimes it's ridiculous. I can't even remember what I was worrying about. And yet it was so important at the time. I can find myself worrying, you know, it might be something to do with the children or maybe a holiday we're planning or some kind of trip we're going on. It might be a talk I'm preparing. It could be anything at all. It's quite random sometimes, but into my head it comes. Anything at all that I might be worrying about. But you know what I find is that if I can take my eyes off the worries and onto Jesus, then my sense of perspective begins to return. And then if I can remember that actually these things are just actually the here and now, and most of them, not all of them, but most of them will probably be forgotten in a month's time, then that feels even better. And then if I can go one step further and remember what Peter's saying, which is that one day, as long as I keep remembering the hope I have of eternity... And keep living in awe of God, respecting him, seeking to follow him, remembering what he did for me on the cross. Then one day, this will all be in the dim and distant past because I'll be with God in glory. And then if I can remember all of that, then I'm really back on track and I might even get back to sleep. As Christians, we have a hope that others don't have. And we need to hold on to that each and every day. And, you know, eternity might seem a long way off for you, especially if you're really young. I won't say what young is. But, you know, it might seem like it's a long way off, mightn't it? But, you know, it seems no time ago that my own parents were in their 30s and 40s raising like me, you know, and my brother's a young family just, you know, really in the prime of their life. Seems no time ago. And yet the years flew by, and now my parents aren't here anymore. They've, they've both died. And both of them died looking forward to eternity, knowing where they were going. And I'm confident that they're in glory with Jesus. But, you know, all that happened in the blink of an eye. It can seem like forever, can't it, when we're here on earth? And yet life goes so quickly and really, our little lives here are going to seem like nothing in comparison with the eternity that we look forward to. 
Years ago when I was a teenager, in our youth group, they showed us a film called I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Did anyone see that film? Yes, some of you are nodding, smiling. It was a film about the end times, and um, it depicted people waking up in the morning and finding that their loved ones had been taken and that they hadn't been taken. And um, it was quite stark, actually, and um, you know, a little bit frightening at times, well, unnerving at times. But, you know, when it was around, and there was a theme song, which I'm not going to sing you, but there was this theme song that went with it that was quite current, and so you sort of found yourself singing it, I wish we'd all been ready. And it kind of helped to keep keep me on track. You know, I'd be thinking all the time, you know, that's where I'm going, that's where I'm heading. Yes, God, I'm living in fear of you. If we can live with eternity in mind we'll have a much healthier perspective of life here on earth, I think. And then thirdly, Peter calls us, or calls his readers, and and therefore us, to a life of love. In verse 22, he just adds this final command about how to live this, this life, this Christian life, or this life suitable for those who have had salvation. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. In other words, now that you've chosen to follow Jesus and that your hearts are therefore now continually being purified as you come to him regularly, getting right with him. Now that that's happened, you're able to love one another genuinely in a way that isn't spoilt because of the things that you were involved in before you knew him, if you like. Because you've been born again, you're now free to love one another. And that's what I want you to do. That's what Peter's saying. And it's true. You know, one of the things I think that helps us to press through in living the Christian life is when our friends in the church love us and encourage us, isn't it? That's why we here at St. Paul's place so much importance on being in a life group. Because if you're in a life group, people get to know you. And they can support you and help you when you're going through times that are tough. And it's a strange thing that some people seem to distance themselves from life group or church when they're going through a tough time. Maybe they think, oh, I need to be sorted before I can go to church. I need to have it all together. But you know that nothing could be further from the truth. It's at those times when we need to come together with other Christians who can love us and support us and help us through those difficult times. Loving each other means action, as you know. It's not just a feeling. Love is an action. And there are so many ways that we, as a church family, can love one another with action. So next time someone comes and tells you they're having a hard time, how about offering to pray for them there and then? Let me pray. Let's pray together for that. You know, God hears our prayers. He changes things when we pray. Let's pray. Well, how about sending a text to someone when you know they're struggling a bit? Maybe just say, I'm praying for you. Or 
Maybe you'll sense God giving you a word for them. I love it when people ha- ha, you know, have a word for me. Sense God saying something for me, a word of encouragement. Sometimes I have them for other people, but I don't always remember to tell them or send them. And yet it's such a lovely way of showing love to pass that on, you know, that encouragement, maybe a scripture. Perhaps you could make a meal for somebody if you knew that that was what they needed, or you could offer to babysit for them if they've got children, obviously. Perhaps you could write a card to tell someone that you thought they did a great job of something, maybe leading a study or leading worship in your small group or the meal they cooked you when they invited you around, anything. To, to To have the things you do well appreciated is a fantastic way of receiving love. Appreciation is a great way to show love. Invite someone for supper. It's another great way to show love. Or invite someone out with you next time you're meeting with a group of friends. Someone said to me recently, not a Christian, uh, and she said that, that her husband, who also isn't a Christian, has a motto, and I was intrigued by this motto. It really caught my attention. This is his motto. If you find someone hard to love, you need to spend more time with them. I really like that, and I think it's true, because when we spend more time with someone, we understand them better, don't we? We understand why they are as they are, and we we build relationship with them, and somehow it all gets easier, and they get easier to love. And you know, I think as Christians, we have every opportunity and all the means of showing love, of living in love, because we can continually come to God. We can continually ask him to purify our hearts, to fill our hearts with his love so that we have more love to give to those around us. So I just want to offer you a little challenge. Maybe you could think of someone this week that you could love in a different way. Perhaps someone in your life group. Maybe someone you sit next to in church. Who are you next to? Maybe someone you work alongside on a team, maybe hospitality or children's work or youth work or, I don't know, worship team. Somebody that you, that you mix with while you're here in church. How could you love them? Think of that person. Think of one way that you could love them. And then don't just think of it, but do it. Do it. Love each other deeply, says Peter. Let's go for it. So three things from this passage. Be holy, says Peter. Not lukewarm, whatever that is, but steadfast and fervent. Secondly, live in awe of God. Live in eternal perspective. Remember your name and heading as you live that life in honor of God. And then thirdly, live in love.